So we are going to look primarily at chapter 36 today. We're going to um, slow down a little bit. Um, I know we've been taking some big chunks, um, but we're going to slow down a little bit as we come to this uh, section of historical narrative that's kind of a turning point in the book of Isaiah. Um, but before we get to uh, chapter 36 itself, we are going to kind of lay the uh, both historical background to it as well as kind of the literary background. Um, Dr. Master uh, already talked a little bit about what the previous uh, few chapters um, have in them, but we'll kind of recap a little bit of that just to set the stage for, uh, for chapter 36. So um, as Dr. Master mentioned, um, chapters 28 through 35 uh, give us kind of the theological principles that were at stake uh, way back in chapter 7 with Ahaz, um, and also the, the things that are at stake here in um, the historical narrative regarding Hezekiah uh, in these chapters, chapters 36 through 39. Um, and those, some of those principles are, uh, you know, judgment for sin, right? Judgment on, on Judah for their sin. Um, though the Lord also hints at salvation, uh, repentance and a returning and a renewal. Trust is going to be, as we'll see, probably the key issue in uh, chapter 36 especially. Um, but he's also been, Isaiah's been preaching about kingdoms, right? Uh, earthly kingdoms and heavenly kingdoms and, and who is the true king. Um, but we'll see, as I said, that the main issue, the, the big question is is trust uh, in chapter 36. Um some historical background to what's um, going on, because Isaiah is actually going to just drop right into this um, situation that Hezekiah and Judah are facing without actually giving us the historical background. You can get the historical background in Second Kings, um, but it was common uh, during this time, whenever there's a change of rulership in a kingdom, it was common for other countries to try to take advantage of that. And that's what's going on uh, at this time. Um, in the, the Middle East, <clears throat> in this area. So Sennacherib comes to the throne in 705 BC, and um, you've got, let's see, from your vantage point, you've got Babylon in the east, um, and you've got Egypt down here in the south. Both of them are going to try to take advantage of this change of rulership and see if they can kind of pull away from the rule of Assyria. Um, they're going to they're gonna try to capitalize on that. And Hezekiah, as the leader of Judah, also sees this as an opportunity to perhaps try and get out from under the thumb of Assyria. So he actually stops paying tribute that, that Judah had been paying to Assyria. Um, and he goes further than that, actually. Um, and he ends up taking some of the Philistine cities to the north of Judah, which previously had been under Assyrian control. Um, obviously, Assyria is not going to like this, right? Um, he probably would not have done that if he wasn't counting on either Babylon or Egypt kind of helping him out, right, coming to his aid. So there's, there's these political things going on, trying to make alliances. Um, the problem is that everyone underestimated Sennacherib and Assyria. So it looked like maybe this was an opportunity. Sennacherib actually takes, like, seizes control of his kingdom, he ends up uh, dealing with Babylon in, in the north. He solidifies his border there, and he starts coming down through the south uh, and southwest and dealing with all of these cities that um, 
had been taken from him. He's taking the cities back. Um, we'll see here in a minute what uh, he says about that. Um, and eventually he ends up having a conflict with Egypt and uh, Egypt does attempt to stop him. They're just not successful, right? Uh, and Isaiah had been warning about this, right? Not to ally, ally yourself with, with Egypt. So that's the historical situation that's going on here. Uh, and in light of all of that, then chapters 28 through 35, remember, Isaiah is um, preaching to, uh, to Judah not to trust in yourselves and those around you, right? Don't, don't make these alliances. Uh, they're going to lead to death. Uh, you need to trust the Lord. So um, one, of the, um, one of the ways you can look at 28 through 35 is uh, you can look at it in pairs of, of chapters together. So chapter 28 and 29, there's these woes against um, Israel and Judah, so the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it's especially targeted at their leaders um, because of they, their, their foolish counsel that they've been giving. Um, and they've been looking to other places rather than looking to the Lord, right, for, for strength. Um, Dr. Master mentioned last week that there's these images of drunkenness kind of just staggering about, not really knowing where to go. Um, so that's 28 and 29. And, um, and Dr. Master also pointed out that in uh, chapter 29, verse 3, right, we have this interesting passage where... Um, God actually says, uh, I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers and I will raise siege works against you. So keep that in mind, right? That's kind of the, what the, Israel, the, uh, the Judites would have in the, in the back of their minds as they're looking out, as we'll see in chapter 36, at the Assyrian army surrounding Jerusalem, right? The Lord has said he's actually doing this. <clears throat> um, chapter 30 and 31 uh, are especially targeted at um, their trust in Egypt. Uh, and actually, let's look at, just really quickly, chapter 31, uh, verses 1 through 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Um, so it's clear, right? Don't trust in Egypt. They're men. They have, they have earthly horses, right? Trust in the Lord. Uh, and um, Isaiah compares a making a covenant with Egypt to being a covenant with death, right? Uh, again, keep these things in the back of your mind, because we'll see some of this pop up uh, in chapter 36. Um, also note, though, in, in chapters 30 and 31, um, there are these statements about the Lord being a gracious God. So if you look back at 30, 18... Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Um, verse 19, he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. So there's this constant call to return to the Lord, right? Return to the Lord. He's gracious. Um, in chapter 30, verse 15, uh, we see again that call over and over. 
Uh, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. What's the problem? The problem is their response, right? We see that in verse 16, um, the end of 15 and into 16. But you were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. So uh, the Lord is saying you're not going to trust, right? You're going to flee um, and, um, and be pursued. Um, one other note from this section. Um, there is a bit of foreshadowing, though, that, that goes on. This is at the very end of chapter 31, uh, verses... 8 and 9, we get a little hint, um, again, keep this in mind, a little hint of what's going to happen in the narrative section. Actually, this will be two weeks from now, probably we'll get to this. So 31, 8 and 9, Isaiah says, And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him, and he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror. And his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So it's not going to be a a person, right? A man, a human army that will do this. Um, So that's 30 and 31. And then in 32 and 33, um, there there are these themes of divine kingship. Uh, that crop up, the Lord as uh, king. So you see that in, right away from the start, 32.1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Um, 33.5. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. 33.17. I know we're, we're kind of moving quick, but this is just all laying these the backdrop, right? This is the literary backdrop to what we're going to see in, in chapter 36. Um, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Uh, 33.22 For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Right? This is the, the, these, these themes of the Lord as king. He is the divine king, the sovereign one who rules over all. Uh, and in this section, um, there's also this kind of mixing now of sort of a near horizon and a far horizon. So some of what uh, Isaiah preaches in, in 32 and 33 sounds like it's this uh, distant ideal place, this new age, right? But some of it is, is very obviously meant to be immediate. So if you look at um, 33... 18 and 19. This is very much dealing with the historical context. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? Probably a reference to, again, uh, 2 Kings. If you read, you read in 2 Kings 18, 13 to 16. But Hezekiah, Hezekiah makes this last ditch effort to actually start paying tribute again. Uh, to Assyria. So that's when he, he takes the, the, the treasury of the temple and he strips the gold off the temple doors and he sends that to Sennacherib, right, as tribute to say, hey, please don't come and invade us. 
Um, as we'll see, Sennacherib takes the tribute, and then he comes in and invades anyway. Um, so there's a sense of treachery there. But this is probably a reference to that, right, weighing, weighing the tribute. And also in um, uh, verse 19, right, you will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Um, so remember, Isaiah had also uh, talked about people of strange lips back in 2811. So probably referring directly to the Assyrians, right? So there's this immediate context, but there's also this imagery of, of a new age to come where the Lord is uh, the divine king. Um, and so in a sense, what's going to happen with Hezekiah is, is really a test of whether he recognizes that divine kingship, right? Does Hezekiah recognize the Lord uh, is the true king? And in this kind of 11th hour uh, rescue, he does turn in faith to the Lord and recognizes um, that he is the, the king. But really, that's, like a, that's a continuing need for all of us, right, uh, as we live in this world. Do we recognize, believe, trust? Are we resting the fact that God is the true king? No matter else, no matter what else happens, right, with, with uh, the world around us, the Lord is the true king, and he is carrying out his plans and his purposes, um, this is also going to involve, just a quick note, judgment on his enemies. So 33.1, Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Uh, 33.10 and 12, <clears throat> Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. So the Lord is going to use Assyria, and then he's going to judge Assyria, right? He'll end up using Babylon, and then he'll judge Babylon. Um, this is the pattern that we see. Okay, 34 and 35 then, leading up to what we're going to look at in chapter 36, um, is more of this... Uh, image of kind of the, the distant horizon and what the end looks like. And you get this very stark contrast in 34, uh, between 34 and 35. There's a clear description in, in chapter 34 of dis, uh, judgment on the nations, judgment on God's enemies. So uh, if you look at some of this imagery, starting in 34, verse 1, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear in all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. So every, everyone, come, come listen. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. Pretty bleak pictures, right, of the Lord's judgment on his enemies. Uh, and then in chapter 35, notice starting in verse 1, we get a different picture. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And look at uh, verse 5 through 7. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. So this picture of the desert being renewed, right, and flourishing, um, in, in obvious contrast to chapter 34. Uh, so there's this re- return uh, of God's people, restoration, um, and again, this, this seems to be looking, there may be hints of a, a near fulfillment when God's people will return from exile, um, but primarily this is looking, I think, towards a, a final judgment and salvation. So, let me pause there. Oh, that's kind of a lot, but that's the literary backdrop to what we're going to look at now in chapter 36. Um, any questions on any of that? And it's going to be an interesting transition as you go from that wonderful vision of, of the desert being renewed, right, now to this um, very uh, difficult uh, historical situation that the, the people of Judah are in, in chapter 36. Okay. <clears throat> so, with that, we will turn to chapter 36. Um, and just a kind of a, a note, I don't think it's accidental Right? It's intentional um, that Isaiah has composed the book the way he did, and he moves from this wonderful vision of God's restoration to, all right, here's the people in a very real situation. Right? That's what, um, when, we, when we read Scripture and we see these wonderful promises of the, the end-time salvation, right? of the Lord returning and being with his people, it's not meant to uh, simply capture our vision and leave us there, right? but it's meant to help us... L- as we live in the, in the world here and now. It's meant to help us get through difficult times, challenging circumstances. When we're tempted to not trust the Lord, we need to remind ourselves of what we've read in Scripture and what we hear preach and what we see of the Lord um, coming in judgment against his enemies, but also in, in restoration and self, final salvation for his people, right? So it's meant to help us live the here and now. Um, all right, so chapter 36. Um we are dropped, as I said, we're just kind of dropped into this situation. Um, Isaiah doesn't deal at all with kind of the, you know, what's been going on um, in the background um, as far as Sennacherib's treachery, right, and, and taking the tribute, but then um, bringing the siege anyway against Jerusalem. So uh, starting in 36 verse 1, Isaiah says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. I'm going to pause there. We're going to take this in chunks. So here's the situation, right, as Isaiah lays it out. Um, Sennacherib's own records do record, he claims that he took 46 Judean cities um, before uh, laying siege to Jerusalem. And that's, uh, as Dr. Master mentioned, he also records that he had Hezekiah shut up like a bird in a cage, right? There's, there's no hope of him getting out, um, Lachish, he's just taken Lachish, which is about uh, 25 or 30 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. 
Um, there's actually, if you, if you ever visit the British Museum, there's a relief sculpture from um, one of the Assyrian palaces that shows that siege against Lachish, but Lachish ended up just being completely, utterly razed to the ground. Nothing left of it. Um, he's also, at this point, just defeated Egypt, uh, who had kind of tried to come to the aid of the Palestinian um, nations, and it does not obviously look very good at all, right? He's taking care of all of these other enemies, and now he's coming directly on Jerusalem, and all of the other fortified cities around Jerusalem have been taken at this point by the Assyrians. Um, and he sends, Sennacherib sends his, uh, essentially a field commander, some type of military officer. We don't know exactly, but the term is Rabshaka. Uh, and so he's going to come bring this message to Hezekiah and to the people of Judah. Uh, and interestingly, as Dr. Master pointed out, he comes to uh, Jerusalem and stands, as it says in verse 2, uh, he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And if you look back in chapter 7, verse 3, that's exactly where Isaiah met Ahaz. Same exact phrase, same place. Uh, Isaiah had come to Ahaz, and remember he had told Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. Uh, so there's a kind of, in a sense, recreation. Right? Ahaz failed to trust the Lord. Now there's another opportunity for another Davidic king to, to trust the Lord uh, in this circumstance. Um, what else do I want to say about that? I think that covers it. So uh, now we're going to see, starting in verse 4, this speech that uh, the Rabshakeh gives. First, he's going to give a speech directly to the, the three men that have come to meet him. Um, then he's going to give a speech more broadly to all the people of Judah that are surrounding and, and listening. Um, all right, I'm, I'm just going to read through from 4 through uh, verse 10. We're going to look at some of the, some of the um, points about this speech that he gives. <clears throat> and the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you two thousand horses, if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants, when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Okay, pause there. Um, some things to notice about uh, this first speech. Um, I mean, as I mentioned, it's clear, right, from, say, verse 5, like, this is the question, right? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Trust, right? That's the issue. In whom do you trust? In fact, that word appears, at least in the Hebrew, it's seven times through this passage. Trust, 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 over and over again. In whom do you trust? Where is your trust? Um, there's also, again, this 
if you notice the theme of kingship, right? How does the Rab Sheikah uh, identify who this message is from? It's almost the same formula, right, that the prophets use when they're speaking the words of God. Thus saith the Lord, right? The Rab Sheikah says, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. He's, he's uh, attributing the title great king that should be reserved for, for God himself to the king of Assyria as if he's the one who rules over all, right? And he's the one who's giving these, these dictates. Um, he also, notice, doesn't ever refer to Hezekiah as a king. That's intentional, probably. He's, he's not using that phrase, right? Um, another important thing to notice about these things that he says, there's a, there's a series of things he's kind of arguments he's making, right? Why you, you shouldn't trust, you should need to just basically surrender to us. Uh, and the interesting th- thing to note is that there's an element of truth in most of them, right? There's this mixture of truth and falsehood, or a twisting of the truth, uh, we might say. Um, and that's always the way of, you know, Satan, for example, in the Garden of Eden, right? Does the same thing. He doesn't just outright say something that, that is obviously blatantly false, he, he takes what God had said and sort of twists it, right, when he says, did, did God really say right, you can't eat of any of the trees? Well, no, he didn't say that. He said you can't eat of this tree, right? Um, or uh, even when Satan is tempting Christ in the wilderness, right, he's actually quoting scripture and using it, but he's twisting it. Uh, and that's kind of what the Rabshakeh is doing here. He's, he's, he's telling some things that are, saying some things that are true, but he's twisting them, right? So he's, he's right about Egypt, right? In verses 6 and 9 when he says, uh, don't trust in Egypt. Isaiah had said the same thing. Don't trust in Egypt, right? Um, verse 10 is, is very interesting. He claims that the Lord said to him, go up against this land and destroy it, which is pretty assuredly not true. But perhaps he's had some spies in the land. That's completely plausible, right? It, that Sennacherib has had some spies that are in Judah that are hearing Isaiah's preaching and kind of interpreting his message in their own way. So they're going, hey, yeah, right, we're divinely appointed, which they were. Uh, if you look back in um, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, um, the Lord says he's going to use them. So there's truth in that, uh, and yet he is... I mean, you could almost, in a sense, say he's he's uh, violating the third commandment because he's claiming that the Lord told him something that the Lord probably didn't tell him at all. Um, he's just reading reading into the things, um, trying to interpret it his own way. Um, he also mentions that Hezekiah had taken down all the high places, right? Which is true. Um, the problem is the Rabshakeh thinks that the Lord doesn't like that when, in fact, the Lord does like that, right? That's a good thing that he tore down these high places where uh, the people were worshiping falsely. Uh, And so he's reading kind of his own experience into things. Uh, And then he ends up taunting them about their lack of both horses and uh, men who could fight, which was also true. They were were short on horses uh, and short on people at this point who could come to um, defend the city. And yet there's also... uh, a, a, a twisting of that as well, right? Because the Lord had, in fact, told them, don't trust in horses, don't trust in chariots, right? You need to trust in me. Um, 
But again, that the main issue here is trust. And what the Rav Sheka is trying to do is undermine that trust, right? He's, he's, his basic premise of all of these things that he has said to them is that uh, the Lord has forsaken you, right? He's not going to help you. Uh, he won't come to your aid. There's nothing you can do. But in fact, the Lord was doing all of this uh, in order to show them they really, they could, they could trust him utterly, right? Questions about that first speech? So apparently that speech doesn't work. Um, we get in verse 11 and 12, this little comment on uh, the fact that apparently the Rab Sheikah had actually given this speech in Hebrew. So verse 11, Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rab Sheikah, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rab Sheikah said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you? and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Uh, horrible description of really what siege warfare was like, right? When you just surround the city and uh, kind of starve the people. Um, but it's interesting to note that uh, we're told here that the Rav has been speaking in Hebrew. So Aramaic was the kind of internationally recognized language of diplomacy at that time. Uh, only the educated elite would have spoken it. And these three men that are representing um, Hezekiah clearly understand it, and they want the Rabshakeh to speak to them in Aramaic, not Hebrew, because they don't want the people around them hearing what he's saying, right? Um, it's hard to know, you know, why the Rabshakeh was speaking um, in Hebrew. Pro- it probably was because he did want the rest of the people to hear it, but he might have also been kind of saying, like, I don't expect you, you know, little Judahites to be all that cultured. You probably don't, maybe you don't know Aramaic. Um, but look, I'm pretty learned, right? right? I, I learned, I can speak Hebrew to you. Uh, so there may be a sense of that. Um, but at any rate, he's using Hebrew, and he's going to keep using Hebrew, and he clearly does want the people around, uh, around them to hear, and not just kind of hold these little diplomatic talks within the small group, which was the way it typically was done. Um, all right, so now we get another speech um, because the first one hasn't got the uh, hasn't received the desired effect. So now the Rabshaka is clearly going to address everyone else around. Then the Rabshaka stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, "Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria." Notice again, right that that phrase. Thus says the king, "Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you." Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? 
Um, we see, uh, again, trust is mentioned, but then a, a key word in this um, speech is the word deliver. So that appears uh, seven times also, I think, um, in verse 14, 15, 18, 19, 20. Deliver, right? Deliver. Uh, who is going to deliver them? And um, the Rabshakeh says, no one can deliver you. Just as all of these other nations have been subdued by us, so you too um, will succumb to that. Um, he, just some interesting things about, about this speech here. Uh, he uses in verse 16 these phrases of Israelite blessing um, about the, uh, you know, eating of your own vine and eating of your own fig tree, drink your own water. Uh, but notice he also, he's not hiding the fact they're going to be deported eventually, which was well known. That was just the way it worked. So he says in verse 17, you know, until I come and take you away. So they're going to be taken away. But he tries to tell them it's not going to be that bad, right? Because you're going to go to a land that's like your own. It's going to be good. Um, just just surrender. Just give in and this will all go smoothly, right? This will all be fine. Um, and this is the way this is the way sin works, right? It's it's deceitful. Um, the the call here to give in is really a call to stop trusting the Lord, right? Make peace with me, which for Judah at this time means you are leaving peace with God, um, because the Lord has clearly told them uh, that they need to trust Him in this, and and that's the way it is for us too, right? Um, Imagine yourself, you know, standing on the wall, listening to this. You see the Assyrian army out there. Uh, it would be much easier to say, you know what? Maybe we should just give in, right? They're, you know, they're not going to, they said they're not going to kill us. They're not going to, like, completely destroy us. Like, the worst that will happen, they'll let us, maybe they'll let us stay here for a little bit, and then they'll take us away to Assyria. But at least we'll live, right? Um, maybe that's better than standing firm and trusting in the Lord. Um, maybe that's the, you know, the easier way out. Or do we really trust the Lord in what he said? Um, and it's, I mean, it's kind of the same, right? When we're tempted to sin, it seems like the easier way out is to give in to the sin. Um, but the question is, do I really trust the Lord? Like in this situation where, you know, maybe if I cheat a little bit, I'll get ahead. Um, you know, the, the immediate payoff looks like it's better. Um, but the way to recognize, uh, the way to fight that sin is to recognize that if I trust the Lord, what he said is true. Do I really trust that it? it will, in the end, be better for me not to cheat, to get ahead? In the end, will it be better for me not to um, say something false? Um, whatever it is that you're, you're tempted towards, um, that's really the, the battle, right? Is do I trust what the Lord said about this situation or do I trust what I see in front of me, what my own instincts, my own instincts are telling me what the circumstances look like? Uh, and this is where uh, the people of Judah are at. Um, he lists these other cities that, that fell to the Assyrians, Hamath uh, and Arpad, a couple of Syrian cities um, that fell and Sepharvaim, we don't actually know where that is, so it's apparently completely gone. Uh, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. They fell in 722 BC. Um, and so 
the Rabshakeh is pointing to the fact that all these other places fell. And so he says, you're going to fall also. The, the fatal mistake he makes, right, the big flaw um, in what he's saying is he thinks that the Lord, the God of Judah, is the same as these other gods, right? These false gods, these idols. Uh, and as we'll see, that is clearly not the case. Um, to finish the chapter, just briefly, but they were silent and an answered him not a word, for the king's command was do not answer him. So uh, Hezekiah has apparently instructed them not to negotiate. They wisely don't. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. So they're going to take the message back to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is now presented with an opportunity to uh, not follow the path of Ahaz, right? And to heed what Isaiah has been preaching uh, for these number of years and what we've read in these first 35 chapters and put that into practice and trust the Lord and see what the Lord will do, right? Uh, and we're going to stop there. Any questions about that? If you, uh, again, I know it's kind of a lot, but uh, hopefully you recognized a lot of what was in 28 through 35 that I mentioned kind of popping up here uh, as kind of that literary background to what's going on. Um, and it's clear again, trust is the issue. Really, do, do, do they believe the Lord or not? That's it. Do they believe the Lord or not? All right, let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, we do thank you that you are a trustworthy God. And uh, we, um, we recognize, Lord, that even as Judah was tempted to um, go with what their uh, eyes told them and to look for the easy way out, so too, Lord, are we often tempted to take the easy way out when we're faced with a difficult circumstance or challenging situation. Uh, when we face temptation, Lord, sometimes it may even seem easier to just give in uh, and, and to sin, uh, follow what our sinful um, nature and instinct is, is leading us to do. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us to stand firm in faith, help us to trust uh, that, that your word is true. And when you say that there is blessing in following you and keeping your word, when there's uh, when you say there's blessing and obedience, that it will turn out for our good, uh, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to believe that in that moment, um, that we would recognize um, that you are a God who keeps his promises. We thank you for Christ, for the true king, uh, who, um, who followed your word perfectly, obeyed you at every point, uh, went to the cross and died for his people, we uh, thank you that those of us who trust in him are forgiven of our sin. We have new life in him and the gift of the Spirit to help us uh, obey you. And we look forward to uh, that day when, when Christ will be revealed to all, to the whole world, as the one true king, the divine king. Would you bless our time of worship? Uh, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.